In Ephesians chapter 4, the Lord willing, we're going to finish the chapter this morning. The truths that we're going to look at, actually leading up to the truths that we're looking at, we're going to look at some broader truths, what it is to be transformed, uh, will offer to us, and I do not I do not exaggerate on this point, radical, these are radical, life-changing, life-altering truths. He's, we've been looking at what it is to put off uh, the old man. In verse 22, he says, put off concerning your former conduct, the way that you used to live, the old man, which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts. And we looked at that last week, that, that these deceitful lusts actually cause the corruption in our hearts to grow. Uh, that they, they promise, but they don't deliver. That's why you see such problems out there with, with drug abuse, alcoholism, pornography, all of the vices out there. Because man's heart gravitates towards sin. And, and it, it is a never satisfied with that degree. That's why in Alcoholics Anonymous, for instance, there's that thing that you don't ever want to just take one drink. Why? Because it's not, you're not going to be satisfied. You'll want more. And that's the nature of a sinful nature. He says, put that off. The old way that you lived. And if you're a Christian and you're living with one foot in the world and you're living that way, put it off. Uh, can't exhort you strongly enough on that. It will wreck your life. It will ruin your relationship with Christ. He says in verse 23, be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man. It's not just put off the old man, folks. Jesus tells a story about a woman who sweeps out the house, casting out a demon, sweeps out the house. The demon goes away, comes back, finds it empty. And, 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 Seven more come in, and the last state of that house is worse than the first. He's, he's not giving us an instruction to just stop living the old way that we used to live, but now he's saying there's a new way, there's a better way, there's an anointed, spirit-filled way to live, and, and that's what he's talking about in this, the, the new man. That's the man that's being renewed day by day, that doesn't have growing corruption in his life because of sin, but growing in grace and knowledge. That's what God's will is for us. He says, put on the new man which is created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So we've been looking at this concept last week. We looked at the concept of putting off and putting on. And as we get into the the text this morning, we're going to look at verses 25 to 29. Uh, I'm going to read through it, but then I want to, we're going to take a trip back to the Old Testament and take a look at some things there that really illustrate what God's heart is for us in this. He says in verse 25, Therefore, putting away lying, let each of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. And don't let the sun go down on your wrath or your anger, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. Verse 29, he says, Let no corrupt word proceed from your mouth, but what is good and necessary for edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Uh, that's a mouthful. It's, this is a list of things that, This is what the new man looks like. 
How we get there is all important. I want to read you a quote from a guy by the name of A.W. Tozer. I like reading his stuff. He's uh, uh, some great things to say. And this is what he says here. He says, some Christians have taken all the justice, judgment, and hatred of sin out of the nature of God and have nothing left but a soft God. Others have taken love and grace out and have nothing left but a God of judgment, a hard God. Or they've taken away the personality of God and have nothing left but a mathematical God, the God of the scientists, the God that reduces everything to a formula. Tozer says all of these are false, inadequate conceptions of God, and they are. So the question then becomes, is how do we reconcile these? And what's our part in walking in the righteousness and the holiness that Paul exhorts us to, as we see in verse 24? Glad you asked. (laughs) We'll talk about it. We're going to look at why from God's word, these things may appear right to some, but they're not. It's an inadequate view of God. You have to understand that God's nature, his character are all important in, in the way that we interact with him on the basis of the work of his son through the grace of God. It, it, this, these are just essential truths. So in looking at these verses, there are four ways that I could teach this passage. One would be the soft God approach. Uh, and it would sound something like this. These are great guidelines for how to live. I know we all mess up, but we're good people at heart, and we do our best to live a good life. That's a moralistic view. It's a soft God view, and it's not accurate. Sounds good, but it's not there. The hard God approach. We can't afford to not get this right. Who, after all, wants to have God angry or disappointed with them? We need to try to be better Christians. I've heard that so many times over the years, folks. And if you said that, I'm I'm not faulting you on that. I'm just saying that it only reaches partway there. We need to try to be better Christians. We were saved by grace, but now obedience is everything. Or I could teach this through the lens of the mathematical God. Here are five ways. He lists five things here. Here are five ways to a more fulfilled marriage. Here are five ways to a more successful career. Here are five ways to a more fulfilling retirement, and on and on. If we do these things, God will bless us. He'll bless our lives. Now, I'm not against lists, but when these kind of things are stacked up against the nature and the character of God, they're wrong. They only reach part way, if at all. Each of these things erroneously places the emphasis on man, on us. And our needing to change our thought processes, conform ourselves to an ideal or to live by a creed. They leave out a personal relationship with Christ. Uh, The point is all of these approaches deal with reform. and, And that's not what God is into. He's not into reforming the natural man. He's not into dressing you up in spiritual clothes. God deals with us through transformation, the transformation of the inner man, the inner woman. That's what he does. That's where he operates from in our lives. So the fourth way to teach this is that, that it's about transformation. It's not about list keeping. It's not about 
it, this weird concept of grace that I just go do whatever I want and you know, work God in. It's, it's not about God being obligated by some list. I want to go back and I want to look in Second Chronicles chapter 34. I want to look at a guy, a king in Israel by the name of Josiah, known affectionately as the boy king. He became king when he was eight years old. He was the grandson of Manasseh, the worst king that Israel had ever known, that Judah had ever known. He was a horrible, wretched king. And, if, and for everything that was wrong with Manasseh, everything was right with Josiah. Uh, in, in 2 Chronicles 34, verses 1 through 7, we're going to go through there. This is 640 years before Christ. It says, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Now, becoming king at at eight, his father, a guy by the name of Amon, he'd reigned for two years after Manasseh died, and he was so wicked. (laughs) Manasseh reigned for 55 years, and then you have two years for his son Amon. And then when he (laughs) was killed, his son Josiah ascends to the throne, and so Josiah it comes into a religious, a spiritual landscape that is just littered with apostasy. It's littered with idolatry. I mean, the nation was a mess. Uh, in Second Kings twenty-one, in verse twenty-one, he it talks about Ammon walked in all the ways of his father. Manasseh had walked, and he served the idols that his father had served and worshipped them. So you have this whole lineage going now that Josiah is going to break. And so he sees the error. It says in the eighth year of his reign in First Chronicles 34, 3, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father, David. Uh, speaking of David, the greatest king in Israel, the one who was a man after God's own heart. Uh, and, and in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, and the molded images. So King Josiah begins to earnestly seek God at 16 years old, eight years into his reign. And at 20, 12 years into his reign, he begins a series of national reforms. He's a man of conviction. He loves the Lord. And, and he wants to see the nation restored. Uh, verse 4 it says, They broke down the altars of the, the, the Baals in his presence. These are, are false pagan god uh, altars that were everywhere throughout the nation. Uh, in his presence and the incense altars which are above them he cut down. And the wooden images, the carved images, the molded images, he broke into pieces and made dust of them, scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests, that's pagan priests, not Israel's priests, on their altars, and he cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. So he did in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, as far as Naphtali, and all around with axes. So he, Josiah goes throughout all of Judah, and he's literally cleaning house. His ultimate goal was to restore the temple and to bring the nation back to the worship of Yahweh. Uh, he knew and he, he saw all of this and his efforts were to, to purge the old sin out as he brought these reforms in. And he knew he'd have to destroy them. 
these altars. He knew that he would have to get rid of all of the physical stuff that was going on. Uh, he even went into the temple and was carting the, the pagan idols out of the temple itself. He knew that he'd have to do this in order to bring in true worship of Yahweh. It says that when he'd broken down the altars in verse 7 and the wooden images and had beaten the carved images into powder, cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel, he returned to Jerusalem. In 2 Kings 23, you can read it. Uh, it's a more detailed account of Josiah tearing down the, the high places and the idol worship and all the purging that he did even in the temple. What I want to focus on here is in 2 Kings 23, verses 26 and 27. Now, I would think that you would be reading this, and and Josiah tears all this stuff down. He gets rid of all of this false worship in the land. I mean, he is very thorough as he goes about it. And you would think that you would read next, that, and, and the Lord was pleased with Josiah's work, and blah, 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 blah. That's not the case. In 2 Kings 23... After listing all of these things that Josiah does, I mean, he even went down into the Valley of Hinnom, which is in the New Testament Valley of Gehenna, and, and tore down the, the, the statue to Molech, this big bronze bull that they heated up. Manasseh had burned his own child on this thing, sacrificed his child to Molech. I mean, he had been very thorough in his reforms. Took it all out. Verse 26 of Second Kings 23 says this, says, Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath, with which his anger was aroused against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will also remove Judah from my sight as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off this city, Jerusalem, which I have chosen, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. Talking about Solomon's temple, when, when Solomon dedicated the temple, the Lord said, look, if you honor me, my presence will be here. I want to dwell in the midst of my people. But if you dishonor me, it's all taken away. And this is the process that God was doing of taking it all away because the people had totally dishonored him. Unfortunately, Josiah's revival, his reforms, they were a surface thing. It never got to the hearts of the people. And that's the point. His reforms were like lipstick on a pig. Have you ever heard that saying? I love that saying. I mean, you could put, you could dress up the pig. You could put lipstick on it, but it's still a pig. It never got to the heart. His reforms never impacted the people. The minute that he died and he died young, he went into battle when he shouldn't have. The minute he died, the nation went right back into abject rebellion against God. They went right back to the old ways. They went right back to the idol worship. They went right back to all of the garbage that they had been involved in prior to Josiah's reforms. Jesus talks about the same type of thing, the attitude of the heart, in Matthew chapter 23. In verses 25 through 28, he points out the same condition in his day. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and the dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. 
He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so you also outwardly appear righteousness, righteous to men, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He's talking about the difference between reform these people, they know they knew how to look good. They knew how to say the right thing. They knew how to do all the right stuff. They went through all the motions. But their hearts were hard. Their hearts were, were cold towards God. Their hearts were rebellious towards him, even in the midst of their stuff. It looked good. But it was an outward thing that they were into. Their hearts were unchanged. I want to look at the definition of reformation and transformation as we go forward here. Uh, in Webster's 1828 dictionary, I, I love this dictionary. It's, it's just a, it, it's, it has the most spiritual aspect, connotations. I mean, unlike modern dictionaries where God seems to be getting relegated further and further out, uh, Webster loved the Lord and he included a lot of things that are really pertinent to our understanding. In, in Webster's 1828 Dictionary, this is what the word Reformation says. This is the act of reforming, correcting, or amending one's life of anything corrupt or vicious. Outward. As the reformation of manners, the reformation of abuses, and so on. Transformation, again, from Webster's uh, 1828, uh, is the act or operation of changing the form or external appearance but it goes further than that. He gives some examples. One is metamorphosis. Uh, metamorphosis, as in the change of form of insects, is from a caterpillar to a butterfly. He's talking about that old thing and now a new thing, as opposed to trying to dress up the old thing, which is what reform does. Theologically, a change in the heart of heart in man by which his disposition and temper are conformed to the divine image. I love that. A change from enmity, which is hostility, to holiness and love. That's what we've been talking about here. The old man that Paul is referring to here in Ephesians 4 is hostile towards God. That he doesn't want the things of God. He doesn't care about the things of God. So reformation expanding on that, is when one is moved to follow Christ's teachings, and pay attention to this, because I want you to understand carefully, understand this. When one is moved to follow Christ's teachings, in doing so, he, by his own power, emphasize that, decides to live a better life with the Bible as his guide. He believes, he has faith and determination to live a better life in order to be a good Christian. This is not salvation. If a person, if, if all this person did was get under conviction uh, or was tired of living life that he was living and decided to reform his or her ways, salvation on that basis has not taken place. Because it's not about being a better person. It's about being a new person in Christ. It comes about through the power of the Holy Spirit by believing that the work of the cross was for you, for me. True transformation always puts the emphasis on God. Reform, reformation, puts the emphasis on man. Now, transformation is a solid biblical principle. Jesus spoke of it. I found a great, I did a great word study here. In John chapter 4, verse 14, 
Jesus says, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Jesus is speaking of a transformative work here. The word will become, the Greek word, the literal Greek word is genomai. And what it means is to arrive at being or to cease being one thing and be another or to change to be. So what Jesus is talking about, drink the water that I give you and, and what, will, what will become of you is your life will become a, 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 this fountain of living water that will gush forth to everlasting life. He's saying there's a change that will take place. There's a transformation that will take place by simply coming to me by faith. Paul the Apostle taught on this concept of transformation in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. He says, We all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. He also, in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The word here for transformed in both of these verses is the Greek word metamorpho, and that's where we get the word metamorphosis from. It means to change the essential form or nature of something. It's to become or to change or to be changed into. So when Paul, in context here in Ephesians 4, is talking about put off the old man, put on the new man, that's exactly what he's talking about. He teaches about it when he is teaching us this concept of putting off and putting on. It must be with this understanding that we approach this passage. Otherwise, we're going down a a list of things that if people do these things, then they can get an improper idea that, well, now God is happy with me. And if I don't do these things, well, then God's not happy with me. And if you understand grace, you know that he is never not happy with you. He may work in your life, but his love is poured out. His grace is poured out. And he is satisfied with you because the righteousness of Christ has been placed on your life. So this isn't a Christian checklist of things to do to get into good favor with dad. You already are. What this passage isn't, it's not about the soft God approach, uh, which is tantamount to reform. In my own strength, to try to become a better person, it's not about that. It's not about the hard God approach. It's not about, it's not direct. This And folks, when I hear someone say, I think God must be mad at me because, and there's a circumstance in their life, my heart breaks if they're a believer, because he's, he's not mad at you. This is not about the hard God approach that, that employs fear to coerce conformity to a creed. I have heard that. I mean, legalistic churches do that all the time. They put people under a heavy yoke. Jesus talked about that with the religious leaders of his day. You do not You do not come to understand God in a healthy way through that approach. It doesn't work. It's not biblical. Yes, the unbelieving world should fear. God is a God of wrath, but if you belong to him, his wrath has been completely rolled away. And now he'll work in your life. Now he will, by his Holy Spirit, change things up in your life. And sometimes that's painful. That doesn't mean he's angry with you. It means he loves you enough to bring you into compliance with what his spirit's agenda is for your life. 
Whole different thing. This isn't about the mathematical God approach. My fulfilling some impersonal spiritual formula. And oh my goodness, I turn on the television. I see what the charlatans out there are peddling. That if I do this, if I support, sow a seed in this, all of the stuff that you see, all the garbage, it's a formula. It's reducing God to a formula. It's saying that if I do this and God's going to do that, then you're going to be blessed through which God is now freed up essentially, to somehow be obligated to bless me because of what I did. Folks, God is in the blessing business, but he is not obligated to us. to, To say that, to assert that, is to assert that somehow God is in my debt. And God is a debtor to no man. Very dangerous understanding. When you reduce God to a mathematical equation of if I do this, then God's going to do that. Yeah, there are times where he puts conditions in our lives. But if that's your approach to the scripture and to passages like this, it's going to fall short. Your understanding will fall short and you will not experience the freedom and the blessedness and the joy that God brings even in the midst of seeing things that hurt in our lives, in our hearts. All of these put lipstick on the pig. It's the same thing. Sorry. (laughs) It's just a good example. All of those will approach and address the outer man, but they don't get to the heart. Don't miss the true meaning and intent of Paul's words here. What this passage is, is directed towards people who embrace the transforming power of God in their lives. People who get the grace of God that's at work in those who by faith true faith in in the finished work of Jesus, they're not motivated by blind obedience, but they're, they're dependent upon the Spirit of God in loving submission. It can look the same on the outside, folks. Forced or blind obedience. Yeah, I'm gonna, I want, you know, I wanna have this, this is how I'm gonna order my life. It, it, it can look the same, but truly what God is wanting from us, what he's looking for in us is an attitude of loving submission. We'll look at that in depth in chapter five of this book because Paul goes on to continue to expound on these things and he gets into the whole thing about uh, about submission. He talks about that in marriage, but he talks about that in the light of mutual submission to God. And as we submit our lives to him and we allow him to rule and reign in our hearts, there is fruit because we're allowing the Holy Spirit his way with us. It's a life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, as we're told in Galatians chapter 5. This is what loving submission looks like. Now we're going to get to the text that we have for this morning. He says, therefore, putting away lying, let each of you speak truth with his neighbor for we are members of one another. Lying is not against my religion. It's against my Lord. To stop lying is not about being reformed to this is what good Christians do, but it's about having my heart transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. That literally this word means an untruth. That what it means is a deception. I don't want to 
I don't want to lead a life of deception. I don't want to be deceiving others. I don't want to be manipulating others. He says we're members of one another. Our relationships are founded in trust and deception ruins trust. So as we look at loving submission in our lives, that's what this is about. It's not a checklist. He says in verse 26, be angry and do not sin, but and don't let the sun go down on your anger or your wrath. The new man may get angry, but he doesn't harbor anger. You understand the difference? We'll talk about that in a minute. Being constrained by the, the Spirit of God, self-control, the fruit of His Spirit that I just mentioned, He instead places a limit on it. I'm not going to let this anger overflow into tomorrow. I'm not going to let this anger, I'm mad, I'm angry. And there are things around us, folks, in the political landscape, in the social landscape that I'm angry about. But I'm not going to let that anger get such a foothold in my life to where now I am controlled by anger because I want to be controlled by his spirit. Very important. Verse 27, he says, do not give place to the devil. The new man walks in the reality of the new versus the old man. We, he understands we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and rulers of darkness in heavenly places. We'll look at that in depth in chapter 6 of this, of this beautiful letter. But the new man doesn't want to give place to the devil. And for each of us, that may look a little bit different because he hits us on our bruises. The enemy, the spiritual warfare that goes on is constant and sometimes it's extreme. But we understand, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, that, that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're spiritual for, and mighty for tearing down strongholds. And that we cast down everything that exalts itself against the, the, the knowledge of Christ. So the new man, in loving submission to God, doesn't want to give place to the devil. Yeah, there are times where we react as opposed to respond. We react in the old nature instead of responding in the new nature. We'll talk about that in a minute as to what God's part is in all of that. He says in verse 28, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor. Working with his hands, what is good that he may have something to give him who has need. Again, he's, this isn't a list of things that he's saying. He's saying this is an attitude of the heart. Something that God builds into us. The new man now conducts his life honestly, honorably, considerably, and generously towards others. He's others-centered, not self-centered. That's a beautiful way to live. It's more blessed to give than to receive, the Bible tells us. And, and folks, I don't know about you, but I know that old man with me is selfish. That old man with me wants to hang on to it. That old man with me doesn't, would rather just make sure that I've got mine. That's not God's heart. God's heart is you go low. You esteem one another as more important than yourselves. And that includes our marriages. <laughs> <laughs> and we're all on this road. We're all in process. We're all being worked on by the Holy Spirit. This isn't about, again, self-improvement. This isn't self-help. 
This is about being yielded. As we yield to him, the fruit of his spirit, that other-centeredness comes forth. I love it when I see people in our church that are putting others first. Talking to someone on the, the phone the other day, they said, well, pastor, you know, the minute that it looks like you guys are, are going to open up, if you're going to do something in the parking lot or whatever, just call me and my whole family will be there. Going low. It blesses me. It blesses you when people are doing that with you, people in the body. I love that as I see people interacting in our church, in, in this body, that that's the, the overwhelmingly, that's the attitude of the heart that's there. Verse 29, he says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, by, but what is good and necessary for edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. The new man is self-aware and gracious. It's not open mouth, insert foot. It's, Lord, what glorifies you? And let me speak words that are edifying. Let me, let me be someone that other people want to emulate. Let me be somebody that other people want to be around. That's because of a heart issue taking place. No corrupt word proceeding from you. Know, it's like, I want to be different. I want to live a life that's separate. I want to live a life that glorifies him. I want to, I want to build people up is what he's saying here. Imparting grace to people that I'm around. So what happens when we're not yielded to his transforming work? What happens when this whole thing is broken? What happens, in, and I'm talking about in the life of believers, I'm talking about in the life of Christians. So what takes place? What's, what, is, what kicks in when I'm blowing off the things that God is wanting to do, how he wants to lead me in my life? Verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Folks, as I cooperate with the work of God's Spirit, that fellowship of the Spirit that I enjoy with Him is unbroken. I can grieve the Spirit. I, and I know what it is, and I think so do you, to grieve the Holy Spirit when I want to assert my way, when I want to get what I want to get, when I want to put my well-being or my benefit above others. I know what all of that looks like. I have this flesh, this old man that wants to express himself. It grieves the spirit. It doesn't anger God. Notice he doesn't say that, he says, and, and don't anger the spirit by which you are sealed. No, he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. He's talking about a sadness in the heart of God. And I know that that sounds weird, but it's really true. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. You can cause him grief. It's as though he's saying, oh, John, I just, I just want you to understand this. I just want you to get this. I want you to walk in this way. Because when you're doing that, you're not only experiencing the blessedness of going low or whatever that thing is, but you're drawing close to me. You're reflecting me well. 
You're advertising, you're bringing me glory. That's what it is to glorify God is we want to reflect these things in our lives. And when we don't, we grieve God. I remember talking with a guy, I think I've shared it a couple of years ago here, uh, with a guy one time that said, John, I, I, I've gotten caught up in sexual sin. And I know uh, that the Bible says that you shouldn't be involved in that. He's a young Christian. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, you know, I guess, he said, I know it's against God's law. And I said, no, the law has, was terminated at the cross. The old covenant of law is gone. But let me ask you something, my friend. What do you think impacts, has a greater impact? If you break a rule or you offend the heart of God, and he was taken back and he needed to be taken back because he needed to realize this is not an impersonal thing. This isn't a mathematical God that we're dealing with. This is a God of love and grace. Yes, a God of wrath, but that wrath again, it's passed away. He's not angry with you. He may be grieved by you when you move away from him and you express your own way, that old nature, that old man. That's why Paul says, I die daily. I die to that old man every single day because if I don't, he's going to get up and want to be on the throne of my heart. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. It's the consistent, this is the consistent battle that every Christian goes through. This is the battle, the battle of the Christian life. Every situation that we go into, we have opportunity to either glorify God or to grieve the Spirit. It doesn't mean, again, it doesn't mean he's mad at you. It means that you may end up paying the price. There may be consequences. He may chastise you in those areas. And, and folks, I would rather go the short way. The new man, essentially the point is, is the, the new man is, is God-centered. He wants to honor God. The old man is self-centered and, and doesn't, he doesn't have the ability to honor God. It's not possible to honor God. It, that doesn't exist. The greatest thing that God wants is not something from us. Yeah, he wants our hearts, but... But understand this, it's not something he wants from us. The greatest thing that God wants is what we were created for. He wants fellowship with us. That fellowship can be broken by sin. I'm not talking about the relationship, but it's like with my children. It's like raising kids. You know, I I would... uh, I enjoyed wonderful fellowship with my children and the relationship with them. But when they got out of line, when they decided to cut and run and to go do goofy things, the fellowship that we had was broken. And now I would move around from that of having fellowship with them to sometimes chastise them, to sometimes reel them in. It's very much the same way in our relationship with God. It's about his transforming work and people that are yielded that are simply wanting to be submitted to his transforming hand in their lives. And that's part of it. He wants fellowship with us. Back in 2 Kings, one of the things we read, uh, he, he says in 2 Kings 23, 27, the last half of the verse, he says, I'll cast off the city Jerusalem, which I've chosen. And the house of which I said, my name shall be there. God wanted fellowship. He wanted to dwell with his people then. In his temple, it hasn't changed. Yeah, the temple's changed. It's not a physical temple, and now you and I are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
We can grieve the Spirit of God. He wants to dwell with us. He wants fellowship with us. He wants to transform our thinking. He wants to, we're changed by the renewing of our minds. So he still does want to dwell with his people. Paul, now he sums up with a clear contrast in verses 31 and 32 between the old man and the new man. He says in verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. He speaks of bitterness here. Again, I'll give you definitions of these as we go along. He speaks of bitterness. It's a state of sharp, intense resentment or hatred towards another. Are you bitter this morning? Is the Holy Spirit putting his hand on something in your life? Folks, honest self-examination is hard, but at times necessary in our lives. And as we look at this, like I said, not a checklist, but definitely something that we, we hold our lives up against and say, Lord, is there bitterness in my heart? He talks about wrath and anger, and you would look at that at face value. You think, why does he have wrath and anger? Isn't that the same thing? No, it's not. Wrath refers to here, the, the Greek word refers to an outburst of anger. Anger here, it, ref, it, it refers, it, <laughs> tripping over my own words, it refers to a state of mind. It's an, it's, this is somebody that, the, the wrath is somebody that flies off the handle. Anger here is somebody who's just angry. It's an angry disposition. And he's saying, let both of those be put away from you. Are you angry? Are you wrathful? Grieves the Holy Spirit of God. Let him transform your heart. Clamor, he says here. The word clamor. I, I, I had a younger sister who since has gone to heaven, praise God. But uh, when she was younger, she would clamor for attention. What it, this is talking about somebody who screams and yells and it, somebody who's clamoring. It, it, it's like, if you want to argue, they're going to argue louder. If, you, if, you, if they don't like what you're doing, you're going to hear about it. That's clamoring. And, and he he's, talks about, let that be put away. Do you clamor? in your life. He talks about evil speaking. This is an interesting word. It's a familiar word for us. The Greek word is blasphemia. It's where we get the word blaspheme or blasphemy. He says, do you speak against someone in such a way as to harm or to injure his or her reputation or to injure other people's hearts? This refers to God or to man. God takes blasphemy against him very, very seriously and reflected between humans, between us, he takes equally seriously, not in the sense of salvation, but it's sin. Do you speak evil with others? Do you tear people down? Is it your habit or the manner of life that you have that you are always needing to make other people look worse so that by default somehow you look better? It's something to be repented of. It's something to take seriously. He says, put away evil speaking in your life. There's no room for that attitude of the heart in the kingdom. Let me transform your heart. Let me transform your heart if you clamor. Let me transform your heart 
If you are bitter, let me transform your heart. If you're wrathful or angry, that's what he wants to do. That's the old man. He gives a, just a, a, a very accurate picture of the old man. And, and all of us experience at least some of these some of the time. Because the old man is there always clawing for, for position in our lives. Don't yield to that. Allow God to transform your heart. Give you to walk in the new man, which he talks about here. Again, he's not trying to improve that. What he wants us to do is repent of that. Say, Lord, I'm sorry for that. I don't want that in my life. Won't you give me a new heart? Won't you metamorphose my heart? And he will. It may take time. If you have to take that thing to him 50 times a day, take it to him 50 times a day. The important thing is, is that you're engaged with him in this process. Your life is submitted to him. Like I said before, warts, cracks, blemishes and all. Know that it's by his grace that he loves you and that he wants a relationship with you and he holds up both sides of the relationship as we looked at in the book of Hebrews. This is not about that. It's about walking uprightly, allowing him to work, to grow you because that's what Paul is talking about here in these passages is spiritual growth in Christ. In verse 32, he looks at the new man. He says, be kind to one another. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Just as God in Christ forgave you, by the way. He's saying, you want to you know what the level is that you measure in your behavior towards others? Look at the way that God behaves towards you. The new man seeks to show the same kindness, tender heartedness and forgiveness to others that God has shown him. You need to know that your sins are utterly forgiven, that God is tender hearted towards you. He's forgiving towards you, that he wants and pursues a deepening relationship with you. And if your life is in that place, praise God. He wants to work. Allow him to work. The outflowing of that work is that's how you're going to be with other people because he's conforming us to the image of his son. And so if that's how God is, and we, in the, the place that we are, in the order of things as his people, will begin to look and act like that in that way. Those are, and we could get into a whole theological thing, and there's no time this morning about communicable, attribu- communicable attributes and non-communicable attributes. No, you're not going to be conformed to the image of God to where you're omniscient, <laughs> omnipresent, you know, omnipotent. You don't have, you're never going to have all power. You're never going to be all present. None of those things. Those are incommunicable attributes that God reserves for himself. But the communicable attributes, the moral attributes of God are those things that he's building in us, that he's working in us, and he's allowing through the circumstances that we face every day. He's allowing us to be transformed into the image of his son, to be transformed in our hearts. It's a beautiful work. It's not a laborious thing. If you understand that you're under his grace, that he is loving and and he is just plain happy with you. He is just plain satisfied with you because of the work that his son did. 
then you're more likely to cooperate with the work that his spirit is doing and not kick against it every step of the way. Remember, this is not a checklist. I've said it before, I'll say it again. This isn't a checklist by which we get a pass or fail grade. No, Jesus passed the test. It's not, this is not that. If that were the case, we'd all at one point or another get an F. (laughs) There wouldn't be any real need to be forgiving towards one another. Why do you think he says be forgiving towards one another? Because we're all in this thing that, that we're all growing and we want to be growing together. Rather, this, what this is, is practical instruction in walking in righteousness and holiness. It's what he talks about. Remember, uh, in verse, I think it was 24, that he's building holiness, righteousness into us. Right living is what that means. Holy living, what that means is set apart living, that we don't act like the world. So these are practical ways that righteousness and holiness shows up. These are practical ways that walking in the new man shows up, not the old man or old woman. It's not about that. He's saying, look, you have a choice. As we wrap up this morning, a few things to look at. Question. How is the put off and put on process going in your life? Have you become lax? Are you hard hearted? Indifferent to the things of God? Are you carnally minded? It's a hard question, but it's an honest question, folks. There are times where I know in my own life, in my own Christian experience, where I became lax. I became just kind of, yeah, whatever. And the Lord chastised me in such a way as he got my attention. I look at it from this side and I think, you know, Lord, I would just as soon not go down those roads. I just simply want to cooperate. So the way that that comes about in our lives is through simple repentance. I just change my mind. Lord, I don't want that in my life. I surrender it to you. And as I mentioned, if you have to do that 50 times a day, do it. Your life will be enriched. Your heart will be transformed. The second is, do you have a balanced view of God? Or do you lean towards a soft or a hard or a mathematical God of your own making? That's a tough question. I know that churches often have people that are there because they just want a better life. Go deep with Jesus. Give your life to him. Don't settle for externals. Don't settle for reform. Don't settle for living a life that's just better. Settle for a life that is governed by the Holy Spirit of God living within you and have true power in your life. The last thing here connected to these, no matter how many steps you take away from God. It's always only one step back. Praise God. I, you know, one of the worship leaders at a church that I was part of for I don't know, close to 20 years, we were praying before service one day and, and she spoke this. And I, I seized on the Holy Spirit, just grabbed a hold of that word. It was a word for me. 
and drove it into my heart. And I've thought about that many times over the years. This is a long time ago. If the Holy Spirit is working in you and you realize that your heart has been far from him, maybe you look to him as one of his own. Maybe you belong to him. And you see that there's carnality, there's things that are getting in the way, and you simply want to be engaged in the transforming work that we're talking about here. Praise God. Let it be a day of new beginnings. He's the God of new beginnings. He always meets us where we're at. Like I said, you may have walked away from him in significant ways. One step back. That's the gracious God that we love and that we serve. If you don't know him this morning, then you need to give your life to Christ. No, you don't need to give your life to a creed to where you live a better life. No, you don't need to be afraid of God once you belong to him because his wrath is rolled away. Actually, before you come to Christ, the Bible tells us in Romans that we store up wrath. That there's actually an account for that. But the moment you give your life to Christ, the moment you say, Lord, I want this transformation in my life. I don't want to just be somebody that lives by the rules, by reform. I want to be transformed. I'm telling you, there's a, that is a supernatural transaction and he will do it. You have to let him. By an act of your will, you need to pray a prayer that's something like, God, I, I, I've lived my life away from you. I have never acknowledge you or I, or I have pushed off from you. Maybe you made a, a profession of faith when you were younger or whatever. But allow him to come in. You trust him for the work that Jesus Christ did on that cross at Calvary when he died for your sins. That's the main thing. The main thing is that you come into his kingdom. Now as part of his kingdom, he will begin to do the work. All you do is lovingly submit. It's what I'm talking about here. That's our part. It's not forced obedience. It's not you better do this or God is mad. It's none of that. It's you come under his gracious hand and he says, I forgive you for your sins. You turn from the old life, you embrace Christ, and then you simply submit to him, let him do the work. I don't know how many times in my life I've come to a point and gone, Wow, Lord, I'm just not as angry as I used to be. Or, wow, Lord, you took that away from me. Or, or maybe in a moment of time, he got a hold of something and I said, here, and, and he took it and I never missed it. You won't miss the old life. Guaranteed. There's richness and depth in the life that he offers. So Christian, don't fall into the reform trap. If you see that you have been living as a moralistic deist, and that's a big couple of words, what it means is you want to live a moral life, you believe in God. As I mentioned before, the, 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 the demons believe and they shudder. It's not enough to live a moralistic life. You need to do business at the cross. And if that's where you're at this morning, pray that prayer. Turn from the old life, embrace Jesus. Enjoy the life that he's given. Folks, you can enjoy this life. These transforming things are things that he is doing in that natural, supernatural way in our lives. You don't have to walk out of here or, well, it's nobody here. You don't have to be in a place where you're thinking, well, I've got to do all this stuff now. No, relax. Relate to him in prayer. 
Submit to his work. Allow him to get a hold of your heart, perhaps in new and deepening ways. And enjoy the blessing of simply being his child. The blessing of being somebody that can be filled with the Holy Spirit and have joy even in the middle of tough stuff. That's God's will for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and for just for your marvelous work that you do in each of our hearts. Lord, thank you, God.